I titled the sermon, The Authority of Jesus Christ. And I think you'll feel this, the last three sermons in a row have all had this at the core. He is the King. He is the King. He is the Sovereign. He is Lord of all. And at the end of the day, there is no Lord above our Lord. There is no King above our King. And His authority is not in question. And tonight, He's going to make a real point for us as we explore this together. So the authority of Jesus Christ, you can follow along on your sermon notes there and in your Bibles. I want to give you just a glimpse where we left off last week. Actually, let me pray before we do as we enter into our time in the Word. Lord, as we now lock eyes with you, we, we pray that you would lead us, that you would open your words through the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see this, not just to know it and, and, and see it, but to love it, to embrace the truth that we are about to enjoy together. Uh, I pray that it would change us, that we would see the world differently, that we would be a people who would bend our knee before this King, this good and sovereign and authoritative and loving King. We pray that you would work your will even now, Lord, as I preach. I think of the people who will watch this online, Lord, even as they watch in wherever location they are. I pray that you would work right now and stir in their heart to see the beauty and the glory and the authority of King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Last week we left off in Luke 19, and this is the, the final verse, really, that, that gives us a feel for, for what is happening. The circumstance is very intense. Jesus is in the temple courts that he has just cleansed, right? He has purged the temple courts of all of the corruption, and now he's placing his word. And it says he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So between that exchange there that Luke gives us and our passage today, you've got to see this. These, group, these various groups have come together in their hatred of Jesus, and they want to destroy him. They are plotting and planning and trying to find a way to, to take him out. They hate him. They hate what he's doing. Every moment that he's in the temple teaching is a moment that they feel is, is too far, and they want to stop it. So we come today to their clever challenge, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20, a clever challenge. Listen to how they come about this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, I love that, Jesus preaching the good news, and all that that is, the chief priests, here they go, the same, same group, chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and they said, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. This is their test. This is what they've come up with. Well, how should we take him out? How should we destroy him? Well, here's what we do. We catch him as he's in the temple in front of the crowds and we ask him this question. If we can catch him, maybe we can trip him up, and maybe as a result, we can destroy him. 
Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. Consider here who's asking the question. I mean, it's, it's difficult for us to really feel the weight of, of, of this authority that is coming now to confront Jesus. You have chief priests representing the, the hierarchy of the entire priesthood. Um, the, uh, the high priest would have a, a, a kind of a pecking order as it would go down, and, and a whole line of priests, and all of this was a, 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 an authoritative hierarchy. And so they are sent, a, a delegation of chief priests come together with the scribes. Now, these groups don't always get along. You've had Pharisees in this groups and, and, and various others. These are the experts in the law. So they bring their various things to the table, and they come and they say, well, we think that if you, if you come at him this way, it may trip him up. And the chief priests are like, yes, let's do that. In addition to that, you have elders or the ruling people of the, of the city. This would have included probably the members, or at least some members of the Sanhedrin, the 70-member ruling council. We learn a lot about them in the book of Acts. They had massive authority. And so they, they are united in their hatred. They come after Jesus, and this is how they come after him. The pecking order of authority is hard for us to, to, to really sense, but Jesus walks into the temple for a second time. And he cleanses the temple. Now here's what he did not do. He didn't go and knock on the door of the high priest and say, hey, I'd like to file a complaint. Um, there's a few things happening uh, out in the colonnade, the, the court of the Gentiles, that I disapprove of. Can you put the paperwork in? I'll wait, you know, for an answer. No. He didn't go to the scribes and say, guys, can you check the books here? Um, this doesn't add up. So, something's inconsistent. This is not what was intended by the court of the Gentile. What, what is happening here? Nor did he go to the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the city. He went and cleansed the temple. He didn't ask anybody. He simply did it. He defied the entire authority of the day. All of Jerusalem had a place, except for Jesus. Everyone else, I mean, you couldn't lift a hand in this culture without getting approval by somebody else. And here comes Jesus walking in with shouts of, blessed is the king from Psalm 118, who comes in the name of the Lord, the messianic shouts, and he comes into the temple and purges it of its corruption. Now, the purging of the corruption was not something this group would have applauded this is their corruption. This is their doing. This is their business. They're benefiting from this, and it's Passover week. He would have thrown the whole order into chaos. People are coming now to try to buy a sacrifice. Well, where do we go? We usually come here. Well, this guy named Jesus ran everybody out, right? How do we change our money? Well, I don't know. Go outside. Find it. I don't know where they are. Everything is confused. And it's Jesus' fault. He didn't ask permission. He simply purged the temple. By what authority did you do this or these things? Why are you teaching? In whose name and whose authority are you teaching? How is it that you have the right to come into to our system and just cleanse the whole thing? It's an interesting question. Here's what you've got to ask. 
What did they want him to say? Right? Because this is a trap. This is a clever, this is what they've come up with. They've worked hard to try to put something before Jesus to catch him in a moment. I think this is what they would have liked to hear him say in front of the people. My authority is from God. I get my authority from God. I don't need it, your authority. I, I, I simply have authority from God. They would have wanted him to hear, to hear him say that so that they could have said, blasphemy, kill him. That's what their goal was. They wanted to cry blasphemy in front of the people who he, he claims his authority is from God. So how's he going to respond? Because that's exactly where his authority is from. Not only from God, he is God. The very temple itself exists for him, not for them. So this is a brilliant response, and it's a very Jewish response. It's a beautiful response that Jesus gives in verses 3 through 8. Let's see what he says. He answered them, well, I will also ask you a question. Now, again, we've been here before. This is a Jewish, very rabbinic thing. You, you actually train to do this. If you're learning under a rabbi, it's called the art of questioning. And you would, you would train to answer a question by asking a question. So Jesus is not simply just being shifty here or trying to, uh, to change the focus. He's giving an answer. Here comes my answer in the form of a question. You tell me, is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay, now, as soon as Jesus speaks these words, these guys start to squirm. This, they, they have tried and tried and tried to trap Jesus, and they always fail. In fact, a few chapters ago, remember, they stopped. They just quit because they couldn't do it. The Pharisees especially, every time they were embarrassed and silenced. Well, they come with their delegation. They think they've got him pinned. And then he responds with this question. And the beads of sweat begin to form on their foreheads as they try to come up with what they're going to say. And, and you can probably just imagine this moment. Well, we're a delegation. Well, who's going to talk? Who's going to answer? Well, don't, don't let this guy. Don't, hold on. We've got to think this through. In this day, in this culture, there were two locations where authority was bestowed. One was more common than the other, far more common. Rabbinic authority was what was established. It was what was expected of the day. You would follow a rabbi at his calling when you qualified, and he would call you, and he would, he would make you his, uh, his Talmudim. You would follow him in his dust wherever he went. And if you were good enough to learn his yoke, his teaching, to, to understand his yoke of understanding and interpretation of the law, not to teach new things, but to teach his interpretation, there would come a point where he would, he would bestow on you the blessing of his authority. So he would say, in a sense, go in my authority, carry my yoke, and teach in my name. There was, it was referred to as the, the giving of smiha. It was a, a, an authoritative ceremonial leaning on a disciple. And so most often in this day, if they asked you this question, you would simply say, well, my authority came from my rabbi. And you would give a name. Oh, Hillel. 
right? That, that's my rabbi. That's the guy I studied under. You, you got a problem with my teaching, take it up with him, right? I'm just simply teaching what I was trained. Rabbinic authority. The other authority that is well documented in Scripture is divine authority. This tended to operate in the prophetic role. The prophets were sent. Sent by whom? Sent by the Lord. They came not with an authority that was brought by the yoke of another rabbi. They simply came many times out of nowhere, preaching and teaching and proclaiming and calling for repentance. So, Jesus asked the question, where did John the Baptist get his authority? It's a brilliant question. He draws a focus to the ministry of John the Baptist. So, when he says the baptism of John, right, he's not just talking about the, the function of baptism. He's talking about the ministry, all of the teaching that he gave, the call for repentance. The baptism that John gave was a baptism of repentance. It was a proclamation. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the path. Get yourself ready because he's coming. And we know that John the Baptist one day saw Jesus coming up and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then John baptized Jesus. And if you recall, that was, I believe, Luke 5. There was so much that happened in that baptism. So much. Jesus wants to draw attention back to those exchanges, that moment. And it's brilliant in its effect. Remember about how Zechariah prophesied of his son at his birth when he was given words again. He said, you child, John the Baptist, you will be called prophet of who? Of the Most High God. This is clear. It's established. For you will go before the Lord and prepare His ways. You, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and forgiveness of their sins. That's what's coming. The Messiah. So was His ministry established in its authority from men or from heaven? From God. Well, they discuss together. You can see them huddling it up, right? Hold on. Hey, guys, come on over. All right. No, no, don't, don't say it. Let's huddle. Let's huddle. All right, what do we got? What are we going to do? I have no idea. We didn't expect him to say that. Well, what are we going to say? We have to say something. So we, could we get the, the glimpse into this conversation. Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? And then another chimes in, you can imagine. But, but, but hey, if we say from man, these people all around here, they'll stone us to death because they all are convinced that John was a prophet. He had divine authority. That's what they believe. Now, what do we learn from this exchange? Well, we learn what they thought about John the Baptist, don't we? They don't see him this way. They simply don't believe in the ministry of John. And that's confirmed by previous words in the gospel. They did not embrace John the Baptist in his forerunning ministry. They did not go and take a baptism of repentance. What? Pharisees publicly repenting? Priesthood? 
scribes, rulers of the city? No, no, no. We'll leave that for the lower class, the sinners. They did not follow John. They did not believe, in fact, that he was from God, nor that he had authority from God. But they're too afraid to say what they really think. So what are they going to (laughs) do? If you, you just picture Jesus over here with those eyes. You just imagine the eyes of Jesus. And they look up from their huddle. Oh, he's looking at us. Man, guys, what are you going to do? He knows right where to put him. It's unbelief. That's the problem. That's the, that's the problem they have with Jesus. It's unbelief. Their eyes are blind. Their hearts are hard. They rejected John, and they're doing the exact same thing with Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. This is just at the triumphal entry. He's looking at the city. These are his words as he cries this out. Just recently this happened, right? The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now remember this. Remember this, this, this lament that Jesus prays over the city. You've got to feel him as the, he watches them huddle up and watches their hearts grow even harder. You've got to feel these words in Jesus. They're doing it again. This is what they do. So they respond to Jesus. that They did not know where John's authority came from. They simply said, we don't know. And Jesus says, (laughs) neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. If you don't know where John got his authority, then you won't believe if I tell you that my authority is from God. So I'm not going to tell you. The reality is, is even if he would have said, my authority came from the same source as the one who sent John the Baptist. My authority is from God himself. I come here in his name to do the Father's will. I'm here in my Father's house. They would have said, you're a fool. And in and, and unbelief, they would have rejected it. It's likely these things are taking place earlier in the week. We might be on Monday or Tuesday here in, in the temple. So just as you, you think about this exchange, we're a little ways here from the crucifixion, but not far. The hostility is reaching a climax. They hate Jesus. And they hate him all the more now. Because in front of these people, in the temple courts, as the temple stands right there, these are the authorities of Jerusalem. And they are silenced and embarrassed by Jesus with one question. That's all he had to ask. It is with this exchange as a backdrop that we drop now into the parable of the wicked tenants. Jesus moves straight into this. Now, 
remember, the crowd is there. This group is there. He's telling this parable not to his disciples. He's telling this to the group that came to challenge him, to question his authority. Here he comes with the parable of the wicked tenants. Let's look at this. Verse 9, I, I titled this, Authority Delegated. So here he's, he's going to set up this, this parable to illustrate his point. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Okay, so we're in a story now. You have a man who planted a vineyard. Now whose vineyard is it? It's his vineyard. If, 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 you, uh, if you have rentals, right, if you, if you run a rental business, you build a house and then you rent that house. Who owns that house? You do. It's your house. But you're, you're having tenants come and, and live in it. And in this case, care for it. Take care of it. Cultivate it. Work the land. Make the, the vineyard fruitful. Bring fruit and produce from it. So it's clear, this is a delegated authority. It's the man's possession. He brings in tenants, workers, hired hands. They live there, they work the land. Okay, it's important that we see that. They don't own it, the, the landowner owns it. Israel is many times referred to as God's vineyard. God's vineyard. Jesus stands in front of the temple where the golden vineyard is literally gleaming in the sun right behind him as he teaches. And the vineyard of Israel is now in view. These people who are listening, they know exactly what he's saying. Oh, that's us. We're the vineyard. Okay. Go on, Jesus. What happens next? It's a delegated authority, not intrinsic. So verse 10, authority violated. Authority violated. When the time came, the owner, the landowner, sent a servant of his to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also took and, and beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Okay, so what's happening here? Friends, this is the prophets. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He kills the prophets. You oppose all those who are sent to you. He, he's sending you one after another. Hey, the fruit of the vine, bring it my way. It's my vineyard. I have right on this land. I'm sending delegations. I'm sending representatives. I'm looking for some fruit to come back my direction. And instead of that, they beat these guys up and send them back so as to say, we reject your authority here. You have no right to this land. This is our vineyard. We will not share the bounty. And you have no authority in this place. Now, the people who are listening to this would increasingly be taken by this. Well, that's just not right. That's, that, that can't be right. They beat him up. Why would they beat him up? Right? So they're, they're increasingly just, oh, this is, this is awful. 
the rejection and the persecution of the prophets. This is a fascinating thing. I, I, I dug a little bit this week to look just kind of at a survey glance over how Jerusalem, Israel, had treated the prophets of old. It's a fascinating thing. Stephen said this, at his martyrdom, oh, by the way, at the hands of many of these same, right? The same people that killed Jesus. They stood over the death of Stephen. You stiff-necked people, he says, of their leadership, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And then he says this, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? It's a fascinating question to ask. As you look through church history, or not church history, through the history of Scripture and, and the Old Testament, the prophetic books, it's fascinating to see this. Let me just go through a little list. Elijah, the great prophet, Elijah, was driven into the desert. Isaiah was sawn in half. Jeremiah was stoned to death. Micah was killed by the king himself. Amos was tortured and killed. Zechariah was stoned near the altar. John the Baptist, most recently. The one that Jesus said of whom none was greater than John, right? Hebrews 11 says that these men were men of whom the world was not worthy. It said they went about in in ashes and and claws, just hiding in caves and, and trying to survive. These are men that God raised up and sent to his people in grace, in love, calling them to repent and turn back to him. And this is how they were treated. Do you think that's in Jesus' view as he tells this parable? Absolutely it is. That's exactly who these messengers were sent from the landowner. He's making a point here. Guys, do you not see a pattern? John is dead. Where did he get his authority from? Is anybody's conscience beginning to be softened to the reality? Look at what you're doing, and you're going to do it again with Jesus. You're doing it right now. When the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? He decided, I will send my, look at the words, beloved son. My beloved son. Purposeful. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Where did Jesus die? Just outside the city. This is prophetic and it is a warning. He's calling out the story just as it's unfolding to the very men who will lead the way in the execution of Jesus. Let's kill the son and keep the kingdom. Now, they may have thought, hey, there's no reason that the landowner would send his son unless the landowner was dead. If he wasn't dead, well, he would come himself. So, 
if he sends his son, then this is the heir, and if he's the heir and the landowner's dead, then if we kill him, we keep this thing. That was their thought. Preserve our power. Keep the kingdom. Kill the son. Jesus, whose authority is it that you do these things? You don't have our authority. You're not welcome here. We will destroy you. We will kill you. John Acton, years ago, said this, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I learned this as a young man in school. Some of you people have have, have, uh, memories of this as well. Friends, there's a reason why we have safeguards in our culture in our society, in our republic. It's because the founding fathers of our nation understood that if you consolidate power too much, the sin nature in men will absolutely corrupt it, and it will be turned to be wielded against the people. We find ourselves in a time right now where we are very dangerously close to having consolidated power down to three individuals for the entire West Coast. And in the name of a virus, this warning must be spoken. Corruption is at the door. The power that was consolidated in Jerusalem had laid hold of that city. The corruption was established It was clear. There was a pecking order. This is how things are to be. Jesus came into the scene and he did not fit the mold. Therefore, kill him. Ironically, that saying is not true. If the one who has absolute power is in fact without sin. Absolutely good. There's only one man that has ever walked this earth that would be able to prove that wrong. One man, and his name is Jesus. The king who came with absolute power but came humbly, purposefully to lay down his life as a suffering servant so that he could die in the place of sinners, at the hands of sinners, and be buried And on the third day rise, invincible in his power, victorious in his work, and then offer forgiveness and freedom, victory for all who believe. What does belief look like, friends? It looks like a bent knee before the king. Those who come to Jesus, not saying, what right do you have over my life? How dare you? Who do you think you are? You want authority over me? No. Believers come humbly before this risen king and say, save me. Forgive me. Be my king, my Lord, my sovereign. That is not what is taking place in this exchange. And so Jesus closes this parable with a very ominous warning. And we here today should take heed 
as we listen, as we hear the words of Christ, these words don't simply apply to those back then. They apply to us now. This is a real warning. Listen to the judgment stone, verses 15b through 18. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them, these wicked tenants who killed the beloved son? He will come, and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, those who are listening, it's as if they just, they couldn't handle this. What do you mean, Jesus? That's how it ends? Listen to what they say. When they heard this, they said, surely not. May it never be. The vineyard of Israel, God's chosen, given to another? It's unthinkable. That can't be the ending, Jesus. He has their attention. They will face destruction. And the kingdom will be given to others. Now, how do we understand this? Well, friends, in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed. As Jesus warned it would, it was. The temple was torn down. Not one stone was left upon another. But far more devastating than that is that the, the, the work of God in His chosen people was taken and a hardening was given to those who were Jews for a season so that the grafting in of the Gentiles could be complete. Largely, the work of the New Testament was a Gentile-focused work. To the Jew first, the problem is, is they often rejected with tenacity. They rejected their, save, their Savior, their Messiah. They didn't want Jesus to be that. And also to the Greek. This was mind-blowing at this time. So, you have in one act both judgment and grace. This is amazing. And friends, it's good news for us tonight. Because the way the story goes, we, not by any merit of our own, doubly so not, right? Here we are. We share the promises made to Abraham all by faith, right? Those who trust Jesus are grafted in and called the people of God. We are brought into the covenant blessings, grafted into the stump by God's grace. Then he looked directly at them and he said, you say, surely not so? Let me take you back to Psalm 118. You know your, your Torah. You know your law. Okay. Scribes, you're listening. You know Psalm 118? Well, let me quote it for you. Why then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus quotes the Messianic psalm that has been sung as he's entered into the city. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just a few verses later, these verses. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Hmm the very foundation stone of the temple. 
the rejected cornerstone. Listen to how this goes. If you fall on that stone, you will be shattered. That is not a good thing. If you stumble on this stone, if you reject him, if you trip up over him, you will shatter when you fall. That is unbelief, friends. That's what is happening before Jesus' eyes. In the crowd, there are those who believe, and he is a precious cornerstone. But there are many in the crowd who don't believe, and they are tripping on him. They trip up over Jesus. And then he says, when that stone falls on anyone, it crushes. This, my friends, is an eternal crushing. This is eternal judgment. Jesus is loving with words of warning here. The rejected cornerstone. Now, these are fascinating terms. It's helpful to see. Uh, I, I snapped, uh, maybe this might have been Dr. John's picture uh, at the corner of the temple. Um, we'll be here again in February. Can't wait. Uh, we were standing right here. This is the northwest corner, I believe, right, babe? Northwest corner of the Temple Mount, okay? Look at this stone here. Uh, these are Herod stones. You can see with the way he cut in this edge. Those are original stones that were there in Jesus' day. Now, at the very base of this, which we can't see, it's way down here, um, but look at how true this gigantic stone would have to be in its cut. The first stone that was laid was the stone that set the entire length of the wall in both directions. It's the cornerstone. It had to be a perfect stone. If it wasn't perfect, the entire building would be off, both vertically and horizontally. That stone means everything to the builders. What did the builders do when they saw Jesus? They rejected him. They rejected him. No, there's no way he could be the, the, the cornerstone. No way. We reject his authority. We reject his teaching. We reject everything about him and we will kill him. And Jesus says, you're making Psalm 118 come true. Just so you know this, it's me. I'm the cornerstone. The perfect, sinless Lamb of God who's come to lay his life down to build the temple of God. Brick by brick person by person. And here we are, friends. Here we are. God's temple made of people, sinners saved by grace. So response this morning or tonight, whichever this is. <laughs> I just want to ask the question. Well, listen, listen to how 1 Peter says this. It stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. I love those words. Chose, my beloved Son, chosen and precious. I lay the stone. Whoever believes in Him. You see the connection now? Peter saw the connection. He stood there as Jesus said these words. He witnessed this moment. And then he gives us in his letter this gift. Whoever believes in him, in Christ, will not be put to shame. You will not be shattered. You will not be crushed. So the honor is for you who believe. But that's not the only part of the story. 
He goes on and he says this, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We live in a world today where Jesus is just like a a watershed. Some people see him and all they do is trip over him. I don't like him. I don't want him. I reject him. I don't want a king. I want to be sovereign. I will not bow. I will not obey. I will not follow. But others of the very same Savior, by God's grace, rather than tripping on him, they plant their feet on him. And they say, I will build my life right here. Right here. He is the rock, the foundation stone of my salvation chosen and precious, true, and the gift of God. The question then begs this morning, how do you see Jesus? What is Jesus for you? Is he everything for you? Is he the rock upon which you build your life, understand your very existence, and guarantee your future reward? Is he your foundation stone? Or are you walking along constantly tripping? The warning goes out today. The call goes out today. Turn from your tripping, your opposition to this king, and embrace him as your foundation stone. Don't let another day go by. Live for him. Love him. Embrace him. And bow before his authority. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved son. We thank you for the way that you have loved us. We don't deserve this. We are the rebels, uh, the haters of you, those who have chosen to be our own sovereign, those who have chosen to to write our own story, and, and yet in love you have pursued us. You have given your Son to be the gift that we don't deserve, but the gift that we need with, with everything. Well, Father, we thank you for this chosen and precious cornerstone in Jesus. We thank you for his obedience to you that was perfect. None of us can say that. We, we thank you for his submission to you that was incredible. He, he gave his life so that he could ransom us from our death and our slavery to sin and self. We give praise to you, Jesus, our King, for your victorious work, for for your faithfulness, even to warn and teach. We embrace these warnings. We delight in you as our foundation, our hope, our rock. You are sure, and you are glorious. We thank you for all that you are to us. We bend the knee before you, and we gladly rejoice in you as our King, our Lord, our Savior. We make you the treasure of our lives, our very destiny, Lord. We we long for the day when you will come. And until that day, Lord, find us faithful to bow to you and you alone above all else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.